The video technology used at last year's Super Bowl allowed us to watch our beloved Falcons' epic collapse from almost an infinite number of different camera angles. We would have never believed that an NFL team could blow a 25-point lead had we not seen it with our very own eyes. In contrast, God used a mere four camera angles to cover the most important life ever lived. The four Gospels represent four angles. At each corner of the action, God put a camera. The Gospels cover the life of the same person, many of the same events, but from four unique perspectives. Matthew wrote to Hebrews. He was a Jew writing to Jew, Jews about Jewish concerns. Matthew contains 129 references from the Hebrew Old Testament. He proves that the Messiah of the Old Testament and Jesus of the New Testament are one and the same. Luke wrote to Greeks. The Athenian philosophers had a lofty view of man. Thus, Luke emphasizes Jesus' humanity. He became hungry. We learn from Luke he perspired. He even wept. He had compassion. Luke depicts Jesus as the perfect man. John wrote to the whole world. He had the whole world in mind. He turns the spotlight on Jesus' deity. Jesus is the creator of all things. He's the sustainer as well. John called him the word or the logos. It was a philosophical term used by the Greeks to define the reality or the reason behind our reality. Jesus, in essence, was Almighty God. Thus, the last gospel emphasizes how the Hebrew Messiah is also the Savior of the world. But Mark wrote with Romans in mind. And remember, Romans were action-oriented people. Rome was a type A culture, a quick-paced people who placed a premium on performance. The Romans valued the ability to get her done. And Mark emphasizes that this is where Jesus excelled. It's been said Mark is a gospel of deeds. Compared to the other three gospels, Mark contains very little dialogue. It's interesting, he records 19 of Jesus' miracles, but only five of his parables. One author writes of this book, Mark's style is brief and blunt, pertinent and piffy, short and sweet. Jesus is not adorned with words and narrative, but he is stripped and girded for action. You see, Mark is the perfect gospel for rushed and hurried and busy Americans like you and me. You know, it's been said America is the only nation with a monument named Rushmore. Mark portrays Jesus as the man on the move. His favorite word is immediately. He uses it 36 times. Mark is the -the on-the-go gospel for on-the-go people. In Mark, Jesus is the ultimate handyman. He's the prototypical servant. Jesus is a can-do guy. He lives at full throttle, yet never spins out of control. Jesus got things done without becoming undone. Hey, if busy is your middle name, Jesus Christ is the Savior for you. It's interesting, a baseball player can't score a run unless he touches all four bases. 
And you can't fully appreciate Jesus without all four Gospels, including Mark's perspective. Let me mention one more introductory point. Mark was Peter's disciple. And some believe Mark's Gospel was actually Peter's reflections of Jesus. This was the belief of the early church. In 180 AD, Irenaeus wrote, Mark, the disciple and interpreter of Peter, handed down in writing the things which his master proclaimed. Perhaps Mark is a glimpse of Jesus through Peter's eyes. Well, compared to the other Gospels, Mark opens abruptly. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Matthew starts with a genealogy that proves that Jesus is the King of the Jews. A king needs a pedigree, but a servant's role has nothing to do with his background, nothing to do with his lineage. It has everything to do with his behavior, his actions. This is why Mark jumps straight into the action. He begins with Jesus' ministry and its advanced man. As it is written in the prophets, and here's one of the few times that Mark quotes the Old Testament, he quotes from Malachi 3 verse 1 and Isaiah 40 verse 3, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now, If the president were to visit our church this coming Sunday, he wouldn't arrive unannounced. Secret service agents would show up ahead of time to check on the area, to tighten up the security. And this was the mission of John the Baptist. He was Jesus' advance man. He came on the scene to pave the way and prepare the hearts of the people for the coming of Jesus. Verse 4, John came, baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. John's baptism was not Christian baptism. It was preparatory, whereas Christian baptism is celebratory. The baptism of John demonstrated a person's desire to repent of their sin. It readied that person for the Savior, whereas Christian baptism is so much more. It illustrates that now by faith, we share in the results of Jesus' death and resurrection. New life has come to us. We're now dead to sin. We're alive to God. We have a clean slate and a brand new start. That's the baptism we celebrate as Christians. Well, John came baptizing, a baptism of repentance. And in verse 5 adds, And all the land of Judea and those from Jerusalem went out to him and were all baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. I guess you could say John made a splash. One commentary sums up John's ministry. Without gimmicks or gadgets, without a mailing list or even a miracle, the crowds flocked to John. What he did possess was a dedicated life, a humble attitude, a message from God, and the power of the Holy Spirit. The church today could learn from John's example. Verse 6 describes John's appearance. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. I guess you could say John was the original hippie. He wore a camel skin coat and a leather belt. He was into organic food. He had trail mix in his pocket. Locusts dipped in wild honey. Actually, there's more to this coat than just a camel skin coat. Tradition says that John's coat was actually the mantle worn by the prophet Elijah, which had been stored in the temple in Jerusalem. 
You remember John's father was a priest, Zacharias. Supposedly, the priest Zacharias retrieved the robe and saved it for his son John. You remember when the angel announced the birth of Zacharias' son, he said he would come in the spirit and in the power of Elijah. John began preaching near the spot where Elijah was taken to heaven, right there on the banks of the Jordan River. John and Elijah were connected. And he preached saying, There comes one after me who is mightier than I, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to stoop down and loose. In ancient Israel, a disciple performed lots of menial tasks for his teacher, except, except one. Loosening dirty sandals was the one task done only by a slave. And here, in relation to Jesus, John felt less than a slave, for he says he was not worthy to even unbuckle his sandals. For I indeed baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. See, John knew that his water baptism was only the first step in a person's relationship with God. It taught repentance, the desire to change. That's what repentance is. It's the desire to change. But the desire alone can't affect the changes. Only the baptism Jesus offers of the Spirit can do that. And I'm convinced that too many churchgoers today know only the baptism of John. They've confessed their sin. They hope to overcome it. But temptation seems to pull them back in. See, it doesn't take long for the person to get pulled right back into the temptation. The temptation's too strong. People confess their sin on Sunday and resolve to do better, but by Friday night they're trapped again. You see, unless I have a power stronger than the power of the temptation, I'm destined to be defeated. That's why repentance alone is not enough. Just being sorry for your sin is not enough. You also need power that comes from the Spirit's baptism. For He overwhelms us with God's love and joy and peace. Graces that are greater than my temptation. It's his power that breaks the chains of my sin. Well, you see, John paved the way, but Jesus is the way. And this is why the focus now shifts off of John and now onto Jesus. It came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And immediately coming up from the water, he saw the heavens parting. And the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. Then a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Now every so often, a book comes out that speculates on what Jesus did during the 30 or so years between his birth and the beginning of his ministry. We don't really know. That doesn't stop people from speculating, though. I believe he worked in Joseph's carpenter's shop. But whatever he did, we know one thing, that he always pleased his father. For here, just before he begins his ministry, the father in heaven speaks, and he gives Jesus his stamp of approval. You are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus lived a sinless life. He always pleased his father. And then we're told in verse 12, and immediately the spirit drove him into the wilderness. Jesus was still dripping wet when the Holy Spirit drove him out to be tempted. Realize Jesus was riding a spiritual high. 
The Father had spoken. The Spirit had descended. Truly, Jesus was the Messiah. But immediately, he's ejected from this holy revelation and thrust into an unusual temptation. And he was there in the wilderness 40 days, tempted by Satan. You know, often when we're tempted, we assume that we must have taken a wrong turn. We must have stepped outside of God's will. But that's not necessarily true. Here, it's the Spirit of God that drives Jesus into this temptation situation. God sets this up, not Satan. We need to know that God uses temptation to test us and to toughen up our faith. And notice what Mark adds. He is the only gospel writer who mentions this. Jesus was with the wild beasts, and the angels ministered to him. What an interesting comment. You know, the first man, Adam, was tempted by a fallen angel named Lucifer, the devil. His sin created a hostility between man and the animals. But Jesus' encounter with temptation reverses those effects. The last Adam, as the Bible calls Jesus, is able to reconcile not only us to God, but humans with both animals and angels. Here we find proof this is a preview of life in Jesus' coming kingdom. And then verse 14. Now after John was put in prison, now you remember the side story of this. It talks about in the other Gospels. John the Baptist had spoken out against King Herod's adultery. The evil king had locked him up to try to shut him up. But with John now out of commission, Jesus steps up. Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The term kingdom is a compound word. It combines king and dominion or domain. The kingdom is the king's domain. Jesus came to bring the king's domain, God's reign to the earth. First in the hearts of men, and we know one day over the entire planet. And notice to be part of God's kingdom, the terms have never changed. Two steps are always required. Repent and believe in the gospel. Hey, don't think you're living under the Lord's domain if you haven't turned from your sin and trusted in the Savior. And then verse 16. And as he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea. For they were fishermen. Then Jesus said to them, Come after me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. Notice Jesus took their natural occupation and he gave it spiritual significance. He says, If you like to fish, come and follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. And isn't this how he calls us? He redeems our ordinary ambitions. If you play music or if you're athletic or if you're good at business, hey, Jesus will employ your interests and he'll redirect them in ways that bring him glory. Like to sing? Hey, you can sing his praise. Jesus found Peter and Andrew fishing. But notice he finds James and John mending their nets. Verse 19 When he had gone a little farther from there, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who also were in the boat mending their nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father, Zebedee, in the boat with the hired servants and went after him. Hey, if Peter and Andrew became fishers of men, could it be that James and John became menders of men? 
It's true, Peter was an evangelist, but John was more a pastor. He was called the elder. He was known as the apostle of love. John's letters encouraged the church to grow spiritually and to love one another. Jesus calls people to be both fishers of men and menders of men. Then they went into Capernaum. Capernaum. This was the city on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee, the northwest shore. And immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and taught. Capernaum will now serve as the Galilean headquarters of Jesus' ministry for the next three years. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. The scribes deferred and they appealed to the precedent of others. But you remember Jesus prefaced his teachings, but I say to you, he taught with authority. Now there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit. You know, you can visit this synagogue even today. I love to read these stories that took place in the synagogue right there where it actually happened. And he cried out saying, let us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. You know, it's interesting that often the demons recognize Jesus' true identity even before the Jews did. Demons believe that Jesus is the Son of God. You better believe it. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. And when the unclean spirit had convulsed him and cried out with a loud voice, he came out of him. Then they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? What new doctrine is this? For with authority he commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. Even that demons were under the domain of this new king. The people were amazed. When Jesus flexed his muscle, even the powers of hell backed off. Verse 28 tells us the result. And immediately his fame spread throughout all the region around Galilee. Now as soon as they had come out of the synagogue, they entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. But Simon's wife's mother lay sick with a fever, and they told him about her at once. It's always a shock to our Catholic friends to discover that Peter was married. You know, Roman Catholicism supposes that Peter was the first pope. Well, if he was, I hate to tell you this, but you got a first pope that was married. For Peter had a mother-in-law. And on top of that, the old girl was sick with a fever. Now, I love what's going on here. First, Peter doesn't just go to the synagogue with Jesus. He brings him home. I hope you don't just come to church to worship Jesus. I hope you take him home with you too. And not only that, when Peter does take him home, he points out the problem to Jesus. Lord, there's a fever. If there's an infection in your family, you need to turn that over to Jesus. For when they do, he came and he took her by the hand and lifted her up. And immediately the fever left her and she served them. Notice the woman was healed in order to serve. She was lifted up so that she could start lifting a hand. With Jesus' help, Peter has now a servant for a mother-in-law. Isn't that incredible? Imagine what he can do for your family. 
if he can turn a mother-in-law into a servant. And of course, this is the reason Jesus heals you and me, is it not? We all suffer from an infection, a fever called selfishness. Jesus comes to drive out that fever from us and turn us into servants. Verse 32, now at evening, when the sun had set, they brought to him all who were sick and those who were demon-possessed, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. I mean, a huge crowd had gathered. Then he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he did not allow the demons to speak because they knew him. Wow. Jesus proved his power over Satan. And, of course, he didn't want the devils handling his public relations, so he muzzled them. I mean, you don't want your, the, a demon to be your spokesperson. He didn't want the demons testifying of him, and so he told them to, to shut it up. But notice, notice what all has now happened in just 34 verses. In rapid fire, Mark covers Jesus' forerunner, his baptism, his temptation, his preaching, the calling of his first four disciples, his exercising of a demon, and the healing of Peter's mother-in-law. What chews up eight chapters in Matthew, Mark reels off in just 34 verses. That's why I'm saying in Mark we find Jesus as the man on the move. See, here's the picture of Messiah that Mark reveals. His ministry is a whirlwind of activity, but it revolves around this calm and peaceful center. Jesus got things done without becoming undone, and for two reasons. First, verse 35. Now in the morning, having risen a long while before daylight, he went out and departed to a solitary place, and there he prayed. Most pastors sleep in on Monday mornings. I, I can speak from experience. But after a busy day of ministry, crowds had gathered, casting out demons, healing the sick. Jesus still, the next day, rose before sunrise to spend time with his Father in prayer. He found a private place, a solitary place, to refuel his spiritual tanks. Jesus filled up in the morning, and he ran off high-octane fellowship all day long. See, you and I, we run down because we don't fill up. That's our problem. I think the busier Jesus got, the more important it was for him to spend that time with his Father early in the morning. And second, Jesus refused to let other people dictate his schedule. Notice this. Divine priorities, not public pressure, guided Jesus. Verse 36. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. When they found him, they said to him, Everyone is looking for you. But he said to them, Let us go into the next towns, that I may preach there also, because for this purpose I have come forth. Jesus got his marching orders not from the crowd, but from his Father in heaven. Rather than cater to the fickleness of his followers, Jesus pleased his Father in all that he did. Hey, that'll remove a lot of stress from your life. If you make up your mind, you're not going to worry about what other people think, but that you're going to always please the Father. So here are two vital lessons that help us thrive spiritually despite a busy life. Fill up daily by spending time with God and then focus on his priorities for your life. If you fill up, and focus in, you'll never fizzle out. Verse 39. 
And he was preaching in their synagogues throughout all Galilee and casting out demons. Then a leper came to him. Now, leprosy in the ancient world was a dreaded, it was the loathsome disease. A white patch became an ulcerated sore that began to eat away the flesh and cause brutal deformities. Lepers lost ears and noses, fingers and toes. They would, uh, their feet would become nubs. The side effect of all this was the inability to feel pain. Leprosy would numb the nerves so that the leper could actually burn his hand in the fire and not feel it. Rats would nibble at his feet while he slept and he wouldn't know it till the next morning. Medical missionary Paul Brand used to do plastic surgery on lepers. And as a post-op procedure, he would send the patient home with a cat just to chase away the rats. But the worst effect of leprosy was its emotional pain. For lepers were quarantined from other people. If a healthy person came near, it was the leper's duty to shout, unclean, unclean, and warn the person away. But this leper came imploring Jesus, kneeling down to him and saying to him, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus moved with compassion, put out his hand and touched him and said to him, I am willing, be cleansed. This word translated touched in verse 41, it means gripped. In other words, it was a deliberate embrace, perhaps a hug. Jesus' holiness didn't keep him from hugging the unclean, touching the sinners. Jesus didn't have to touch this leper to heal him. Understand that he could have just spoken the word. But the love he showed in touching him healed the leper emotionally, even before it healed him physically. What a beautiful miracle Jesus works in this man's life. And then we're told in verse 42, as soon as he had spoken, immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. And he strictly warned him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go your way, show yourself to the priest, and offer your cleansing, those things which Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Now here's the one command of Jesus that you and I are not required to keep. The leper was told to keep quiet about the miracle, to keep the miracle to himself, to control the swarming crowds that were surrounding Jesus. Whereas you and I, we need to shout out from the rooftops the miracles that Jesus works in our lives. We need to shout out for all to hear, which is what this leper did anyway, as a matter of fact, verse 45. But he went out and he began to proclaim it freely and to spread the matter so that Jesus could no longer openly enter the city, but was outside in deserted places, and they came to him from every quarter. And even today, people are flocking to Jesus from every quarter. He's still moved with compassion. He still says to us, I am willing, be cleansed. Jesus is still on the move, and he wants to move in our world today. Well, chapter 2. And again, Jesus entered Capernaum after some days. And it was heard that he was in the house. Now, how cool is that? The word got out. Jesus is in the house. Immediately, many gathered together so that there was no longer room to receive them, not even near the door. And he preached the word to them. 
The place was jam-packed. Everyone had gathered to hear Jesus. Now understand, the homes in those days were tiny. Imagine 50 people crammed into a space probably the size of your dining room. Another 40 people out on the porch. A hundred or so milling outside. It's hot and humid. The crowd is thick. Everybody's impatient. Everybody has their own agenda. They want to get to Jesus. And here come four buddies. And they are determined to get their sick friend inside to see Jesus. Galilean houses, they had flat roofs consisting of timbers that were usually two to three feet apart. The beams had sticks and thatch in between them, and the roof was usually topped with a foot or so of packed dirt. Imagine these four men clawing their way through the roof. I'll bet Peter blew a gasket when they saw what they were doing to his roof. You're putting a hole in my roof. Before he could stop them, they were lowering their paralyzed friend down to the floor on a wicker stretcher. Well, that's a scene we find described in verses 3 and 4. Then they came to him bringing a paralytic who was carried by four men. And when they could not come near him because of the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he was. So when they had broken through, they let down the bed on which the paralytic was lying. Verse 5 tells us, when Jesus saw their faith. Now notice initially what caught Jesus' attention wasn't the crippled man's faith, but it was the faith of his friends. Notice that. And their faith was three things. It was determined, it was daring, and it was digging. You know, faith meets obstacles. That's what has to be determined. It also has to be daring because faith breaks with convention. If a door isn't available, why not a roof? And it keeps digging through the spiritual mud until a light breaks through. This is what faith is all about. And if you have a friend with this kind of faith who is willing to intercede for you, you have a great gift. This man had a great gift. He had four such friends. Verse 5, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven you. And let me suggest that this was actually a letdown for the fellows who had just let down this crippled man. For the pressing issue in their minds wasn't their friend's sin, it was his disability. And in this regard, his friends were much like you and me. When we pray, we're preoccupied with our physical situation usually. Our friend's physical situation, the illness or the job loss or the financial distress or the relational conflict. We're fixated on the surface issues, whereas Jesus is always looking deeper. He's always looking deeper. We worry about the symptoms while Jesus wants to deal with the root issues. What good is it for our bodies to be healed if our spirits go to hell? Jesus realizes first things first. The spiritual always takes precedent over the physical. Forgiving this man's soul was far more vital than healing his body. Verse 6. And some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, Why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Hey, the Jews were right. They understood that only God could forgive sins. And they realized that by claiming to forgive this man's sins, Jesus was claiming to be God. But immediately, when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they reasoned thus within themselves, he said to them, Why do you reason about these things in your hearts? 
Because he had read their minds. They knew it. Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven you? Or to say, arise, take up your bed and walk. Well, at that moment, it seemed more difficult to heal a man's paralysis than to forgive him of his sins. Of course, in time, the opposite would prove true. Jesus healed the man's paralysis by just speaking a word. It'll take a crucifixion to gain his forgiveness. Yet on this day, Jesus said, verse 10, but that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, arise, take up your bed, and go your way to your house. Immediately he arose, took up the bed, and went out in the presence of them all, so that they all were amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. I mean, the miracle blew them away. Hey, Jesus knew the proof was in the pudding. His ability to heal supported his authority to forgive. Well, then he went out again by the sea, and all the multitude came to him, and he taught them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, whose name will later be changed to, to Matthew. Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax office. Now this name Levi spoke of the Hebrew tribe to which this man belonged. The Levites were the tribe responsible for serving in the temple. This shows how far this particular Levite had strayed from his roots. For instead of serving God, Levi is hustling for Rome. At the time, Israel was under Roman occupation. A tax collector was considered a traitor. Levi was a Jew who was sleeping with the enemy. His family was ashamed of him. His neighbors must have despised him. The only person who loved this man, Levi, was Jesus. And Jesus offers to Levi a better way to live. He said to him, follow me. And in verse 14, Levi responds. So he arose and followed him. This is so beautiful to me. It's so simple to me. Le Levi never says a word. He never asks a question. This tax collector simply rises from his money table. He leaves all, and he follows Jesus. It really is just that simple, guys. He is so worthy. Nothing can compare. There is something about Jesus, an air of authority, an allure of love, a tug of truth that makes men want to follow him. Levi never hesitated. He knew he would never regret it. He left all that he had, all that stood in his way, and he followed. Now it happened as he was dining in Levi's house that many tax collectors and sinners also sat together with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many, and they followed him. Now, Levi first opened his heart to Jesus, but then he did something else. He opens his home. He invited his friends to a party. And since no self-respecting Jew would have ever been seen with a tax collector, Levi hung out with the prostitutes and the sinners and the rebels and the tax collectors. His wild parties would have made a rock star blush. But after he gave his life to Jesus, Levi threw another kind of party. He invited his normal guests, but now with the hope of them meeting the man who had changed his life. 
You know, perhaps God wants you to throw a Levi party. Why not invite some of your friends who aren't Christians over to your house for dinner one night with the point of inviting them to Jesus? That's what Levi did. He didn't want to follow Jesus and leave behind his peeps without inviting them to join. Well, the surprise in this story is not that Levi's friends also followed Jesus. They admired what had captured Levi's heart. The surprise, at least to the religious crowd, was that Jesus came to the party in the first place, that Jesus socialized with tax collectors and sinners. Verse 16, And when the scribes and Pharisees saw him eating with the tax collectors and sinners, they said to his disciples, How is it that he eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners? Hey, Jesus understood a truth about God that many religious folks, even today, seem to have forgotten. And that's this. God loves sinners. He does. Too often religious people look down their noses and grow judgmental and convey this holier-than-thou attitude. How dare people act that way? Christians turn away from sinners, but Jesus turns to them. Jesus loves sinners. Mark tells us how Jesus answered these stuck-up Pharisees. When Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. People assume if Jesus were here today, he'd hang out in religious crowds. I don't think so. Jesus would spend eternity. He'll spend eternity with the righteous. It's the unrighteous that need him now. That's where Jesus would hang out. In the bars, in the, in the dives, in the places where non-Christians hang out. He, he would go out. He wouldn't expect them to come in. He'd go out and greet them. Jesus came to hang out with the lowdown. Yet what about us? Do we share his preference? Do we have his heart for sinners? Or have we forgotten that we were once one? Sadly, after our conversion, most Christians spend all their time with other Christians. We avoid contact with lost people. We need to have a more Jesus attitude. In verse 18, we're told, The disciples of John and the Pharisees were fasting. Then they came and said to Jesus, Why do the disciples of John and of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Well, we know the Pharisees, they fasted from food to show off their self-righteousness. John's disciples fasted to cast off the things of the world. But the disciples of Jesus, they enjoyed the buffet. Jesus' men passed on the fast. They loved to eat. And in verse 19, he explains why. Jesus said to them, Can the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. Now understand, for a working class couple, their wedding feast would have been the happiest week of their lives. No one wanted to spoil their fun, not on their wedding feast. In fact, the rabbi said that a wedding feast was the one time when Jews were, quote, relieved of all religious observances which would lessen their joy. They were exempt from fasting and mourning, anything that would lessen their joy. Well, in essence, the disciples' three and a half years with Jesus was their wedding feast. 
Ordinarily, fasting is a fast track to God. Proper fasting is a way to fatten our souls. Fasting forgoes a legitimate pleasure to pursue a higher calling. When we fast, we say no to food to say yes to God. It all is a great discipline for spiritual growth. But while Jesus was with the disciples, he was living, they were living in God's presence. They were living with Jesus. So why fast to communicate with God when the best way to communicate him was to sit down next to him and have a meal together? That's why Jesus' disciples didn't fast. In verse 21, he continues to explain the differences between Judaism and life as one of his disciples. He says, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, or else the new piece pulls away from the old, and the tear is made worse. Now, put a patch on some well-worn Levi's, and when the jeans are washed, the patch will shrink, but the jeans don't, and it pulls the patch loose. In other words, what existed and served a purpose in the past isn't always able to accommodate what's new. Jesus continues with his thought. No one puts new wine into old wineskins, or else the new wine bursts the wineskins, the wine is spilled, and the wineskins are ruined. But new wine must be put into new wineskins. Pour new wine into a dry, brittle flask, and when the wine ferments inside and begins to expand, it'll burst the brittle flask. It'll spill the wine. This is why you put new wine into new, supple, flexible, pliable wineskins. You need a new container that's stretchable, that can accommodate the vitality of the new wine. On one level, Jesus is comparing here Judaism to an old wineskin. The new wine of God's Spirit made Jewish tradition and rituals obsolete. The law restrained the individual, whereas the Spirit empowers us to do the works of God. The new wine of God's grace will never fit into the brittle bottle of legalism. A new wineskin is needed. Christians live by faith, not by works, not by law. But these words also had a broader application. For God still does new things. He still pours out new wine. And when he does, we have to be flexible and willing to change our approach. If we're stuck in a rut and we don't have the flexibility and willingness to change, we'll interfere with the work of God. If we get stuck in a rut, the Spirit will move past us. He'll work through others. Recall the last words of a dying church. We've always done it this way. When God does a new thing, we have to replace brittle ways of thinking with new and flexible approaches. This is how the church has to respond over and over again to the new wine that Jesus is pouring out. Well, this chapter closes with an example of this kind of change of thinking. Verse 23. Now it happened that, when, that he went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. And as they went, his disciples began to pluck the heads of grain. And the Pharisees said to him, Look, why do they do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Now understand, when God gave the fourth commandment to Moses, he made it very simple. Exodus 20, verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day. To keep it holy. That's it. This was a broad, general principle intended to be applied to the heart of each believer by the Holy Spirit. God designed one day each week 
for people, for you and I, to rejoice and to rejuvenate. The Sabbath was a whole day to worship and play. It brought a balance to the rest of the work week. In essence, the Sabbath day was a reminder to you of why you work the other six days of the week. Rather than get so caught up in work, that's all you ever do. No, you need to balance that out. You need a day to work, a day to rest and play to remind you of why you work. Instead of this, though, the Pharisees had applied this law of the Sabbath with a heavy hand. In fact, you can go back and read the Jewish Talmud, and you'll find 24 chapters on how to keep the Sabbath holy. They made it a full-time job just to keep all the rules. They turned what was meant to be a day of rest into a heavy work, a heavy load of trying to work at this thing. Jesus looked forward to the end of the Sabbath. The Jews looked forward to the end of the Sabbath just to rest from the rigors of having obeyed it. And one of the stipulations you find in the Talmud was that you couldn't grind grain on the Sabbath day, not even between your palms. This was work, and thus it was an infraction, a violation of the Sabbath law. This was what the Jews tried to use to incriminate Jesus. They saw his disciples. They were out in the fields. They grabbed the grain. They were grinding it up, trying to make a little meal so that they could feed themselves. Now, now here's one irony. Another one of the Sabbath rules was that a person couldn't travel more than 3,000 feet from their home on the Sabbath. The fact that Jews are out in these fields watching Jesus indicates that they'd broken their own laws to spy on Jesus and his disciples. They were hypocritical. Well, Jesus responds to their accusation. But he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and hungry? He and those with him? How he went into the house of God in the days of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the showbread, the sacred bread, which is not lawful to eat except for the priests, and also gave some to those who were with him? Jesus points to Jewish history to show them that there are times when other concerns take precedent over the letter of the law. When David's men entered the tabernacle, and ate the sacred bread. It was the only bread available. It was either eat the bread or David would have died of starvation. And Jesus is saying that human need takes precedent over religious ritual. That compassion trumps tradition. The Jews were all about tradition. Jesus was all about passion. The Jews were all about law. He was all about love. They were all about these principles. Jesus was all about people. And he was willing to adapt the principles to serve the needs of the people. Verse 27, and he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. God invented this idea of a day of rest, not to make life burdensome and bitter to us, but to make it better and blessed. If your neighbor has a heart attack on Sunday, I mean, would you tell him, it's my day of rest. I'm sorry, but God wants me to not exert myself today. Hey, come back tomorrow. I'll take you to the doctor tomorrow. Would you do that? Of course not. His need would become your priority. In other words, the Sabbath was intended to help us, not hinder us. Jesus says in verse 28, Therefore the Son of Man is also Lord of the Sabbath. That's a big statement. 
That's a big thought. Hey, I'm Lord of even the traditions and the rules. Sadly, some people I know, their Christianity is really nothing more than adhering to rules and rituals. Keeping the Sabbath, if you will. Real Christianity is far more. Real Christianity is following a person. Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. He sets the rules and he lifts the rules. He's greater than the rules. In fact, the rules were only intended to help us walk with him. Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath.